0: Yeah, it really is a privilege to be here, because like I try before I speak not to have too long of a, you know, intro before the intro, I'm not going to try and do too much of an intro before the intro, but it's, it is a ma- massive privilege being here, it Feels like every time I come back, I can't believe all the new faces, and just the incredible growth that's been happening here, the churches that have been planted from here, and uh, just in, in in short, I was part of initially looking for a venue to plant in Somerset West, and I never imagined that what happened would actually happen, and um, that you guys would plant out like you have, that we would see this growth. It's amazing. And then I'm also thankful that there are a few uh, more mature people here, because normally if I speak, the, the room is full of about 19 or 20 year olds. So if I make bad jokes, it's because I'm used to the, the less mature humor, okay? But I'll try. I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll, we'll start. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being able to get together this morning um, Lord, even as I shared in uh, before we took communion, God, we thank you for the absolute privilege of the fact that we get together like we gather this morning, that we, that we are not persecuted, that we get to freely come together, we don't have to hide it away, um, but that we, we get to express our, our religion, Lord, we get to express our love for you so freely, and we praise you for that honor this morning. Jesus Christ, thank you that you are working in art. and I pray that as I bring this message that eloquence of words, I thank you that that is not going to cut it, Lord, but it's a demonstration of your Spirit's power. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and work in our hearts and to come and minister to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I'm going to share a little bit this morning on the life of Paul, the apostle, Paul of Tarsus. I know there's a a slide up here, and I specifically want to speak about Paul's conversion story and what happened in the first Actually, to say first few days of Paul's life, because there's this quote, you might have heard it if you've been in church for long enough, that what you get saved into is much more important than what you get saved out of. I'm just going to say it again, what you get saved into is more important than what you get saved out of. Because I know, and I'm going to speak about that a little bit later, that we can get saved out of God, God can, God can reach into the pits and he can come, and I think that would be all of our testimonies. That God is able to come into the mess of our lives, and he's able to save us out of the mess of our lives. But the next step, whatever happens right after that, and sets the foundation for your Christian walk, is extremely important, because that will determine whether you keep walking with God, or whether you fall away. I remember as as a Bible college student, one of the lecturers, he encouraged us to, in the front of our Bibles, to take a pen and write down all the names of the people who were at Bible school with us, and the people that that got saved with us and got to know the Lord with us, the Christians that we knew around us, the close Christians. And I remember writing down a list of about 30 names, 30 or 40 names in the front of my Bible, and he said, as you keep walking with the Lord and you stay close to the Lord, over the years, every now and then just go back to those names and see who is still serving the Lord. And I'm telling you, it's a scary thing when you start crossing off names of people who have fallen away from the faith, who have black backslidden, who were once called for the ministry but totally gave up on their callings. It is really scary. So you can get saved and you can have this amazing encounter with the Lord and see Him working in your life in miraculous ways. But if your foundations are not set, if they are not properly set, then that will determine the rest of your walk with God. And so what I want to do this morning is look at one of the greatest examples of a solid foundation that I know of someone who got saved, but got the correct foundations from Jesus Christ from the beginning. And what I'd like us to do is to look at the life of Paul and look at the foundations that Jesus set in his life when he got saved and ask ourselves, how am I doing in those areas? When I got saved, are these areas that Jesus set as foundations in my life that I know that I know that I know? that he did did that work in my life. And if that's not the case, that we would come before him this morning and say, Lord, not only for longevity, because there are a few gray people here, and you've been serving the Lord for a long time, and I'm sure you're quite sure that you're going to serve him until the day that you die. For my younger crowd, it would have been a different message. But not only for longevity, but for fruitfulness as well. That you would say, God, help me to set the correct foundations in my life. Now, the reason we're focusing on Paul is because I think he was one of the most influential Christians to ever walk the face of the earth. Because we can't call Jesus a Christian. He was the Christ. Christian means you are a follower of Christ. So, so it sounds controversial to say Jesus wasn't a Christian. But that makes sense, eh? I'm not going to be chased out. Richard's not going to come and haunt me. <laughs> if I say Jesus wasn't a Christian, you get what I'm saying. He was the original. He was the, the Christ. And we imitate the Christ. And so the best imitator of, this, of the Christ that I know in the Bible is Paul of Tarsus. He was a man that had a radical salvation. He was totally opposed to the things of God. He wasn't a nominal Christian before he got saved. He wasn't someone that was open to Christianity. He was vehemently against Christianity. But God came into his life, saved him in a powerful way, and used him to formulate about two-thirds of the New Testament that we have today. If we had to erase Paul from Christianity, we would erase a massive part of Christianity. He set a big foundation for us to follow God. And so that's the reason I want to look at his life this morning. So what I'm going to do is I'm only going to teach through Acts 9, verse 1 to about 20. And we'll skip a few verses as we go, but we're going to focus more or less on those 20 verses. So we will put it up on the screen if you have your Bible and you want to follow in your Bible you're more than welcome to do that as well. So I'm going to start with verse 1, and I'll read until verse 3, and then I'll stop and just explain about these areas. And the first thing I'm going to focus on, there will be five foundations, and I'm hoping that I can get to five. I'm a disciple of Andrew Selye, and that means I'll probably get to about two, because he normally doesn't get to his notes, but I'll try and get to all five. And and I want us to examine our lives and ask God, should I still grow in any of these areas? So the first one I'm going to look at is we're going to look at Paul's conversion, how he got saved, because that is extremely important, how he got saved. Start with with verse 1, and I'm in the ESV, and you are in the ESV as well. This is the translation Jesus read from, so it's a very good one. (laughs) But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, now the way means Christians, they were only called Christians later on in the book of Acts, but he's speaking about Christians here, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. So I'm going to just stop there and look at these first three verses, and we want to look at how Paul actually got saved, because this is, in a sense, how I believe all of us need to get saved. Now, we're not, we don't ride horses anymore, so I don't mean to the T, but the general principle of Paul, how Paul got saved is actually really important here. So let's just look at his life for a moment. As I said, Paul wasn't a nominal Christian. He was, he was someone that actually persecuted the church. And my question is, why does God pick that man to be one of the most influential Christians to ever walk the face of the earth? Why does he pick a murderer of the people of God? He was the person that when they went out to persecute and murder Christians, as I said, I'm reading this book and I'm so challenged and I wonder, would I have been one of those Christians that would actually lay down my life for Jesus? I I don't actually know. I'm hoping so. But we we don't have that opportunity to stand and be martyred for Jesus. But he was going against those people who were willing to be martyred. They were solid Christians. They were those that Jesus accepted freely into his presence because they were willing to lay down their lives completely, not only by word, but indeed to even die for Jesus. He went after the most faithful of Christians. And when they were killed, in fact, you would know the, the story of Stephen, One of the first deacons that got killed for his faith, Paul was the one that they would lay their cloaks at his feet. What we know from history is that he was most probably part of the Sanhedrin, so they came as an honor to him and laid it at his feet because he was the one that sanctioned the killing of Christians. And I think what God wants to teach us here is is that he can really save anyone. God can save anyone tell you a little bit about myself, because God saved me, and that also means that God can save anyone. And uh, I just met people that moved here from Johannesburg recently, and I feel like if God can save someone from Boxburg, which is where I come from, then God can save anyone. (laughs) Listen, it it does take a while to get the Boxburg out of a person, and it's not out of me completely. (laughs) We've got... We've got two twin little girls. They're just over a year old. They're sleeping with my mother-in-law there at the back. They're taking their morning nap. And I said to my wife, listen, they need to love Jesus, but I want a little bit of Boxburg in them still. A little bit of personality, a little bit of a rough side. (laughs) But I was an unsaved young man from Boxburg, grew up without a father, grew up with no real role models in my life, grew up with a mom that was undiagnosed bipolar, so I grew up in an incredibly unstable home. Financially, we weren't always secure. From, from before I got to know Jesus, I can't tell you of one faithful Christian that I knew in my life. Can't look back at my school career and say, well, there was one or two. I just didn't know any Christians. It wasn't part of my frame of reference. And God, in his faithfulness, came. And at one stage, my mom went through a severe bout of depression. And my family reached in and they said that I should move to them and I... I moved to my uncle and aunt's house, and as part of them going to church, I was invited to church, and the first weekend they said, well, they have a youth camp for the grade 10s and 11s, the standard 8s and 9s, and I went on this camp, and for the first time in my life, I encountered the presence of God in a real sense. I came into his presence. I had a physical encounter with him. You know, Paul, when he saw Jesus, it was a blinding light that came out of heaven. It wasn't an intellectual conversion. It was an experiential conversion for Paul. Now, Paul was a man of intellect. He was a man of intellect. He knew the Bible better than any of us could ever hope to know the Bible in our lifetimes. I'm quite sure of that. He was trained under Gamaliel, which was one of the, 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 the most influential Jews of that time. So he, he had an in, understanding of God. But God didn't reach into his life on an intellectual level, just like God didn't reach into my life on an intellectual level. But he reached into his life on an experiential level. He said, you need to have an encounter with me, and that will bring about salvation to you. And I had an encounter with Jesus on that camp. can't explain it. I mean, I can try. I can say that I was justified on that day. There was propitiation, I can't even say that word, propitiation for my sins on that day. There was an exchange of my sin for his righteousness. I can try and put words to it, but actually I can't put words to what happened in my heart that day. And I think for Paul it was the same thing. He could try and put words to it, but actually it was a faithful God. Without him reaching out to, to God, without him having any merits of his own, it was a faithful God that reached into his life and said, I love you. I choose to bring you into my fold. I choose to take you from the kingdom of darkness and he was in severe darkness and place you into my marvelous light. I choose to justify you. I choose to make you righteous. I choose to forgive you. I choose the fact that I died on the cross to now make that applicable to your life so that you can live. I choose you. Is what God did in Paul's life at that moment and I know for many of us my wife is one of those that that grew up in a Christian home and we can't pinpoint the day of our salvation and that's fine but you need to pinpoint a time in your life where there was a knowing of God not a knowing of the mind but a knowing of the heart and the mind can follow but the heart needs to lead there needs to be an experiential knowledge of our God. You know, we, we, we are, we live in times where intellect is put at the forefront. I lead a church in Stellenbosch that is full of students. They are the cream of the crop. They are the, the clever of the clevers. And um, we just spoke to one of the, the students. My wife spoke to him the other day and joked with him because he's studying actuarial sciences and said, Oh, you probably got a hundred percent for maths at school. He's like, no, no, not, not completely. <laughs> she said, what, 99%? Yes, 99%. <laughs> and then I joked with one of the others and I said, yo, I spoke to one of your friends and he got 99% at school. What did you get? 99% <laughs> for maths. So we work with these incredibly clever people, clever young people, but the problem is your cleverness, your intellect can get in the way of really knowing God. there needs to be an experience of our Savior. And if you're sitting here today and you have been serving God on an intellectual level, you've been serving Him on a nominal level, you've been serving Him because your parents served Him or because it's the right thing to do as a South African, then I want to say you need to come before Him and say, God, please come and save me. Please come and save me. And I'm even trusting that at the end of this service, I don't know if there's anyone, but if there's someone here that has not had the knowledge of God in their hearts come into that place where they know that they know that they are saved because of even experiencing him, that we can pray for you. It will be the biggest privilege of this morning to be able to pray for you for salvation and for a knowledge of the truth. I ministered at Paul Ruiz um, High School a few years ago, and it was so beautiful that that some of the children started coming to me and asking me, they said, there's this teacher, Mr. De Beer. In Afrikaans, I thought it was funny, Menir De Beer, because we always used to tease. Meneer De Beer came to me, and he said that I will know if I've been saved. I won't doubt it. And the kids had questions, and you know, actually, that's so simple, but it's so true. You will know. You won't doubt. And if there's anything of a doubt in your mind, please, afterwards, let us pray for you. So Paul had that. He had an experiential knowledge of Jesus. Foundation one. God taught him that his intellect was not enough. You still with me, eh? Okay. Hallelujah. (laughs) Okay. Secondly, let's go to the second scripture. God taught Paul about the importance of church. Verse four. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him. Now, this voice that, that you're about to hear there. In your Bible, it's probably written in red letters, meaning it's Jesus speaking here. It's the incarnate Jesus speaking here. It's not, not the one that lived on earth anymore. It's the one that was resurrected, that's in heaven, coming out of heaven, still active, still working, reaching into Paul's life here. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Me, that was a taste. See, I'm, I'm used to students now. Sorry for this. I'll try. Why are you persecuting? Me. Who was Paul persecuting? He was persecuting, well, yeah, you, some of you are confused. That's the point. Who was he persecuting? He was persecuting the church. But who did Jesus say he's persecuting? He's persecuting him. So one of the primary lessons that Jesus wanted to teach Paul from the get-go is if you are persecuting my church, you are persecuting me. Because I and my church, we are one. I am the head, but my church is the body. What I want to do in this earth, I'm not just going to come and appear and come and do it. I'm going to use my church. They are integrally connected to one another, me and my church. And I think, let me just quickly read. And then he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. God wanted to make it clear to him. You're persecuting me, but you're persecuting my church. was persecuting the people of God. But Jesus made no distinction because if you get saved and you properly get saved, what God does miraculously is He doesn't only give you salvation and a connection to Him, He gives you a connection to the body. Miraculously. He makes you one with the universal church, with the church all over the world, that we don't know who's part of that church. It's only those who are redeemed, those who are saved. He makes you integrally connected to those people miraculously. And so when there's proper salvation, not just an intellectual understanding, but a heart salvation, what God does is He saves you. I'm going to try and not be blasphemous here, but I really want to explain what I believe the Scripture says. He saves you vertically, but He also saves you horizontally. He redeems you vertically, but He also redeems you horizontally. And Jesus never meant for us to try and walk out this Christian walk on our own. He destined us to have church. He destined us to have fellowship. This is not a good idea. It's not an organization that we're trying to build. We're not trying to build clever systems. We're trying to build something that we see Jesus wants us to build. Because we need to show church to the world, and we need to be church for one another. Church is not a building. It's actually beautiful that we're gathering in a school and not in a church building because it helps us to break that mindset. It's not a building. It's not an organization. It's not a business. Church is a people. Church is a people who love one another and live together. So we need to learn about this thing called church. And I think that the the big problem for us today is we can can get to church and say, cool, I understand church, meaning I will come on a Sunday. And if I'm a Christian 2.0, Meaning, those radical Josh Chen Christians, I'll go to community on a Wednesday as well. Then I'm radical. Then I'm properly saved. You sort of saved because you go on a Sunday? I'm joking, but I'm properly saved. I'm a Christian 2.0. We think that that is what it means to be part of church, but that's not what it means to be part of church. Being part of church is when my life is connected to yours in such a way that when you suffer, I really suffer. When you rejoice, I really rejoice because we are together. We have been bound together and we live together. We say when we speak to our community leaders that community should go past community evenings. Sundays should go past Sundays. If these are the only times that we see one another, then we haven't caught the heart of church properly. If Wednesdays are the only times that we see our little small group, then we haven't caught the heart of church properly. It's when we see one another in the week, when we pray for one another in the week, When I call you when I'm going through a difficult time and not only share it on a Wednesday, then I'm starting to understand what God destined this thing to be. And how unfortunate that many churches are so program-driven, but not relationally driven. Everything's perfect. You'll have the smoke, the lights, the camera, the perfect worship team. And one thing that I like about Josh Jen is that we suck. (laughs) We're just not so good. I mean, we try, but we just, we're just not that good. I always say, I love it that when people come to us and, and our, our, not to be offensive, no, like your AV is a, a fantastic, I'll speak about us. When our AV isn't working properly and when the worship team has a false note, like this morning, I'm joking, wherever you are. <laughs> when the worship has a false note and when the preacher comes to the front and he waffles a little bit because he's trying just to find God in the thing, I love it when people come to us and we don't have it all together, but we still see the church growing and expanding. Because that's a testimony of the fact that we don't have to have a perfect system because we serve a perfect God and we are imperfect people coming together to serve God. That's what it should be. And we should seek, as we come together, we should seek interdependence. Our culture teaches us dependence, our independence. We need to learn interdependence. We've got in our church, it's it's so beautiful, but we've got more and more black people coming, which I love because I, I think it's a beautiful picture of the body of Christ expanding. And we've got an eldership couple, Godfrey and Boitomelo Magao, with us. And uh, the, he's a, a speaking uh, gentleman. He's about 28 years old. And his wife is, Carla, what is it? She's tw- Twana. She's Twana. And just speaking to them, and then one of our deacons, Martha, uh, Martha Asimwe, she's from Uganda, speaking to her the other day. She told me about their culture. And you know that, that I'll speak about the white culture. I'll speak about my culture. My culture and many of your cultures, you know that it's, it's good in some areas, but it's also flawed in many areas. Our culture is flawed in many areas. So there's this thing in the black culture that they speak of, of black tax. Black tax is your family make sure that you get an education. When you get an education, boy, you are going to pay for that education. You don't pay for it before and you pay for it afterwards. So once you've qualified and she qualified as an engineer recently, she did her master's in engineering, her parents are really wealthy, but now they're asking her, okay, but can you buy your brother a phone? They've got the money, but she better pay (laughs) because they've contributed to her life. And now out of her life, she contributes to the community. Again, community builds into you, you build into the community. And I said to her, Martha, that's so horrible. You just started working. This is the time to save. And she said, you know, it's so interesting that you white people see it like that. <laughs> she, said, she said, the community raised me and they built into me. I get an opportunity now to build into the community. How beautiful. But how flawed are we? We are so concerned about self. So concerned about us. Me. When I worship, it's me and God. In Africa, when they worship, it's us and God. Come on, we need to break out of our cultures that don't teach us church properly. You're going to have to fight against your internal struggles, fight against your, your internal battles, fight against your culture to properly get into church the way that it should be. Because church is, I think the black culture represents church much better than our white culture does. It's community community. So I know there are many Christians that think they can go without it. I can't go without this. Can't go without it. It's like a chicken that had its head cut off. There can be a semblance of life for a little while, but if the head and the body are disconnected, there's not real life. Anyone ever cut off a chicken's head before? Be honest. We'll just lay our hands on these people and, and pray for them. But that chicken will keep running. But there's actually no life because there's a disconnection from the head. How beautiful that Paul got taught that lesson from the beginning of his walk, eh? How sad that we need to learn that lesson years after. Make sure you learn the lesson. God wants it to be connected to your salvation, actually. Third. Third foundation that was built into Paul's life is... um, I don't know how to phrase it. I'm just going to call it Ananias. Ananias is the lesson he learned, and I'll, I'll speak about it now. I'm going to skip a few verses and go to verse 10 to 12. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to Ananias in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision, in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. So let me just give you a little bit of context for what happened here. As Paul got saved, God made him blind. Now that goes against so many of our our theologies, eh? How can God make a person blind? How can God give you a disability? It doesn't sound like the God that we get taught, eh? God always wants to give you good. He always wants to make you prosper. Is it really the case? I mean, the Bible I read, God killed people. The God of the New Testament killed two people who stole money from the church. So when that offering basket comes around, you make sure you don't take change. You don't put in a hundred and take out a 50, right? (laughs) I'd be too afraid to do that. That's the God that I see. It's, it's the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament was even able to bring a disability into Paul's life. But here's the beautiful thing. He, he, well, some of the disabilities God even kept there. Remember the prayer that Paul prayed. Father, remove this burden from me. He said, three times I prayed it. He must have been so used to God answering his prayers. We heard Skalkia praying for months on end. He said, I've even prayed three times and God hasn't answered me. Say there's a thorn in my flesh. God, please take it from me. But God said to him, no, my grace is sufficient. You know, so much of the church is so sick. It's fraud. It teaches us that God will take out every thorn, always. It makes God into a genie in a bottle. You just ask and he will give it to you. Name it, claim it, it's yours. That is unbiblical. God will use your difficulties to shape you into a better follower of him. However, just to set that foundation, there are things that he wants to take away. Let's look at Paul's life here for a moment. As he sees Jesus, as this light comes from heaven and it shines upon him and he gets saved experientially, he learns about church through Jesus himself, God gives him blindness. But God says, this flaw I want to take away, but the only way that you can take it away is through the hands of another. See, the blindness didn't go away by prayer, by fasting. It didn't go away by him coming before God, studying the Bible. It only went away through the hands of another. And so from the beginning, can you see the beautiful lessons God is teaching Paul from the beginning? Saying, if you want the blindness to go away, I need you to be paralyzed in the arms of another. If you are not humble enough to bring your life before someone else, bring your life because before someone who is more seasoned in the law than you are, then this blindness will never go away. And Paul, who was more learned than Ananias, I promise you that, had to humble himself. God taught him humility. He had to come before Ananias and he had to say, please lay your hands on me, please pray for me so that the blindness can go away. And as he did the blindness, it fell like scales from his eyes. How many of our problems don't go away because we are not humble enough to submit it under more seasoned people than we? Our anger, our lust, our greed, our jealousy, our envy, our striving, our struggles, our our lack of discipline to pray and to read Bible, our internal struggles, How many of those things do many of us sit with for years until we learn the lesson that we need to bring our lives before those who God has placed over us in the Lord and say, help me. I don't know how. In fact, I cannot do it. Now, I want to encourage you this morning. You know, it's a really difficult thing to do because what it means is you need to come into the light. It means you need to say, I struggle with lust. I struggle with pornography. I struggle with, with um, I'm sleeping around, or I'm, I'm greedy, I'm stealing money, I'm not paying tax. It means any of those things, but you need to come openly before someone and put your life in the hands of another. But you know what? You will never experience the breakthrough that God has for you if you don't learn that lesson. You need it as a foundation in your life. God has given you a body, yes, but he's given you leaders in the body. Have you had a coffee with one of the leaders and said, this is my life, this is what's going on, please help me, please pray for me? One of the community leaders, one of the elders, one of the deacons, but we need to learn those lessons. Am I making sense? Okay. I think I am going to get through all of them. I'll go through the the other two a little bit more quickly. It's a beautiful lesson that the fourth lesson that God um, taught Paul was that of the fact that he had a calling. How long have I been going? Do you know? 25? Fantastic. So I've got another 40 left. Okay. (laughs) Um, Verse 13. We jump a few. No, we're just going to the next verse. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. Listen to this, how beautiful. This is before Paul did anything for the Lord. This is what God speaks over him. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he has to suffer for the sake of my name. Before Paul did anything, God called him to do something for him. How, uh, like I know for me, I've got the struggle. I feel like I need to work for God sometimes in order for God to have a calling on my life. God, please, I'll, I'll serve you. I'll do anything. Then I'll have a calling. But actually what God does here is, before you got saved, God saw ways in which He wants to not only work in you, but work through you. It has nothing to do with your righteousness. It has nothing to do with your good works. It has nothing to do with your effort. It's something that God sees over your life. And as you follow Him faithfully, he works that in you. God has not called us to be people who only live for Him without living for others as well. We're not only those Christians called to receive from Him, but we those that are called to receive from Him and to give to others. And God wants to use each of us sitting here in a special way in His kingdom to advance His kingdom. It's really easy to become a lazy Christian just to come to church and feed, feed, feed but not to realize that God is calling you. And the calling that he has for you is going to cost you something. Paul's calling. God said to him, yes, I'm calling him, but I will show him how much suffering is going to come with his calling. You know, God is calling you, and it's going to cost you something. But it has nothing to do with your work. It has nothing to do with that. If I think of the life of Peter, I like Peter a little more than I like Paul, because Peter made many more mistakes than Paul. So (laughs) I like him. But you know, when when God called Peter, his, his name was Simon, and Jesus said to him, I will call you Peter, which means rock, and on this rock I will build my church. God called him Peter before he was Peter. God called him rock before he was a rock. He was still a reed, is what his name actually meant. It's a reed being swayed. But God sees a reed and he calls it a rock. And you know what? God looks at your life, I'm telling you, even if you're a reed, he sees a rock. He same see some area and that is for you if you are young or old. So now it's so nice for me to see may I say older or is that offensive? I don't know. <laughs> more mature, okay. More mature in years. <laughs> it's so beautiful for me to see them all mature because in our congregation, we've we anyway, we've got lots of young people. Like we can't keep up. It's just it's been so much growth. We've gone to two services getting people saved and baptized, and it's beautiful. But you know what we, we have a lack of is maturity. We've got zeal, but we don't have maturity. And we need older people who will step into their calling and say, this is what God has called me for. I will be an example, and I will shepherd the flock under me. I will shepherd the young people under me. If you're sitting here and you are more mature in years, you do have something to offer. You know, Andrew said this thing, it actually challenged me. He said, In the kingdom of God, we never retire, we refire. That's what it should be. You should have more time on your hands now that you retire to say, What can I do? How can I shape it? How can I be involved? How can I serve? I'm refired now. I've got time on my hands. I don't have a stupid job to keep me busy anymore. I've got people. And for the youngsters yeah, you have something to give because you bring zeal into the old people's lives. You know, life can drag you down the older you get. You've got children, you've got responsibilities, you've got bills to pay. You go through the tough parts of life. It's so easy to lose the zeal that God wants us to have. Young people, run with zeal for God. You have a calling within this house, within this church. You have a calling. You are called to make an impact, whether you're young or old. You are called to have an impact. And that has nothing to do with your merit. It's something that God sees in your life. So you need to come before God and say, God, I don't know what it is, but I know that there's something. It's what God called Paul to do. And then finally, God equipped him. He put four foundations in his life. I'll go through them. He he put true conversion into his life. He understood true conversion. He understood church. He understood the, the, the necessity of submitting your life under more mature believers. He understood calling and that it had nothing to do with him, but all it had to do with was with God. And then God wanted to teach him how to walk further, and he taught him dependence on the Holy Spirit. Verse 17 and 20, I'm going to read for you. I'm going to skip a few verses just to help understand. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on Paul, he said, Brother Paul, or Saul, it's just the Greek pronunciation and the Hebrew pronunciation. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, God takes the ugly out of us and He replaces it with the Holy Spirit. It's actually beautiful. He's a redemptive God. He takes our brokenness and He changes our brokenness into something where we can bring healing. And you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, Jesus is the Son of God. You know, we cannot do this Christian walk without the Holy Spirit. We cannot. We need the infilling of the Holy Spirit. We need to be prayed for, and we need to regularly come alongside one another and pray for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Say, Holy Spirit, you come and empower me. You come give me the gifts that I need to minister to your body, to minister to unbelievers. You come and empower me. You give me life. Now, we try to master it up in ourselves. Today, I will read more Bible. That's not wrong. Today I will pray more. That's not wrong. Today I will be more dependent on the Holy Spirit. Today I will ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill me. That's important.